We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. First Amendment to the United States Constitution. Actually, the Third Amendment, as we learned a month ago, I guess. Seems like a long time ago that we were sitting in here. Last time, we did the uh, the introduction to the podcast. First Constitution Thursday it was myself, John, and Pat Lawyer. Change of team today. We got uh, myself, Pat Lawyer, and uh, Chatroom Jeff sitting in. Good morning. 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 Now you got to get right on that microphone. You can't be afraid of that thing. Why would I be afraid of that? I don't know, but sometimes lawyers, people's are. Lawyers love to talk. Well, we'll find out today because <laughs> we're going to argue some, some stuff today. The First Amendment of the United States Constitution, of course, was put into place because, well, if you go back to the very founding of people, uh, Europeans anyway, coming to the United States, coming to what would become the United States, the primary reason was religion, religious freedom. Religious. That was uh, the the pilgrims, which I don't know. Still to this day, that term kind of amuses me. But I don't have time to get into the whole thing, the whole history, of right? But, where but basically, what you're talking about here are are um, Cromwellians. These are people that supported Cromwell in the in the English Civil War, and of course, when when the uh, when the New Model Army and all that was overturned and the the return of the kingdom. They weren't. Uh, they weren't exactly welcomed in the uh, the old dominion, as it were, and so they uh, their religion, of course, was not acceptable to the king, and so they left. Uh, they went to Holland for what a fifteen years or something, something like, like that. that. They were in Holland for a long time, and Holland, which then and even to some degree now has a has a reputation for being, well, let's just call it uh, tolerant of of just about anything and everything. I, I've never actually been there, but my wife has. And- yeah, you're right. They'll, they'll put up with anything. There. Pretty much, yes. So, the, but even then, they began to shift in the late 16 teens uh, to shift away from that. The pilgrims, the, the, uh, as, as, I don't know what they called themselves, but Cromwellians is what I call them, uh, not feeling quite as welcome anymore. They went back to England and, uh, and got a ship called the Mayflower and came here, sort of. Which well, is compressing the tale down right. significantly if you want the whole thing by Rush's book. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was an interesting, fascinating journey and of course when they got here then they here's the part that strikes me as odd they stayed on the ship for like another two to three months sitting offshore because they weren't sure what was where they were a they weren't sure where they were and b they didn't know if they could get everybody ashore or not so well, most of them were sick they didn't know who was on the shore right and that whole story and, and uh, but again the whole reason for them coming here was primarily religious freedom uh many of our initial colonies were founded in the ideals of religious freedom, Pennsylvania, uh, William Penn, Quaker. And that's, you know, you get a lot right. of the, the Quaker mentality in Pennsylvania and, and, and therefore uh, uh, Massachusetts, of course, is very Puritan. Puritans, that's the word I was looking for. Puritans. Ah. Uh, Cromwellian, I guess, is a better phrase. I like that better. But uh, the Puritans in, in Massachusetts. Uh, Rhode Island essentially is formed out of the people who are kicked out of Massachusetts because they're not Puritan enough. 
for which explains a lot about why Rhode Island ends up being the way it is. Yeah, petulant as they become. And there's a story out there, and I, I didn't look it up for this, but there, there's actually a story in there that the, the, the woman, there's a woman involved with this who is a Puritan woman who isn't Puritan enough for them, and not a, not in the sense that you might be thinking Puritan enough, but she's really challenging a lot of their positions on you know how women are treated in the church and so forth and so on, and they kick her out. They exile her from Massachusetts. Wow. She goes to Rhode Island, which explains a lot, as you said. <laughs> That's how they end up down there. It, uh, Maryland, the, the Maryland colony is actually founded uh, as a Catholic yes. colony, which is um, interesting. There was a map that came out this week of the dominant religions by county. I don't know if you saw this. on. It's, it's making its way about the Internet. And Maryland is almost entirely Protestant uh, standard Christian. It's that it's no longer Catholic wow. by any stretch of the imagination, but it was founded as a Catholic yes. colony. And it's, it, that intrigues me because, uh, my great, great, great ancestors came here in 1647, um, which is probably a problematic time in English history. If you think about it, they came here in 1647 and they went to Maryland, which makes me wonder, Res- were they Catholic? You would assume they were. Yeah. You'd have to kind of assume that, but I don't know that. And clearly, they didn't. My ancestors didn't say Catholic for long because they uh, they moved about quite a bit. They didn't stay in they didn't stay in, in Maryland very long. They moved to uh, the Carolinas, then on to Alabama, or Alabama, very Baptist, yeah, and then on to Arkansas and Texas, and continuing west in my generations, we've made it all the way to California. So there you go. But uh, again, religious freedom. Uh, Georgia is hev- was heavily Anabaptist in its day. Yes. Um, the Carolinas. Hard to say for sure, but uh, usually primarily Church of England in the early days. Uh, Especially South Carolina. Yeah, yeah. And, and more Baptist in, in today's days. But it's, uh, it's that religious, that idea of religious freedom, the, the, the ability to practice one's religion that led to most of these people coming here in the manner in which they did and settling here and establishing those state religions. And I think that that's a very important thing that gets forgotten here is that many of the states, I think it was nine of the 13 colonies, I keep calling them states, but at this point they're not. Nine of the 13 colonies actually had, quote-unquote, state religions established, including, of course, Massachusetts, Maryland, Pennsylvania. Uh, I don't know that Georgia did establish a religion, but they were definitely heavily. Virginia. Virginia, Virginia. definitely. Um, And and so it was was with interest then that when the Constitution takes place that the the framers in the first Congress, James Madison, puts pen to, to, to paper and comes up with those words. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment or respecting an establishment of religion. Now, when we look at that today, that has become something of a, um, a challengeable point. We're going to talk about some cases here, some case law that's going on. We have the situation in um, Greece, New York, New York yep. which uh, Pat can summarize for you here in just a second. We've got an issue in uh, San Diego. San Diego and, and even more than that, we have the the so-called traditional war on Christmas going on right now. I mean, you can't well, turn on a news station anymore without seeing somebody saying that nativity scene doesn't belong there, which it raises some interesting questions. It raises some interesting points. And speaking as a person myself of the Jewish faith, I'm not offended by Christmas displays on public property. It doesn't bother me. It's part of the tradition and history of our country. Well, just as I think a lot of Christians wouldn't be offended by a menorah. I mean, it's, they shouldn't be. No. Should, there's no reason. Uh, 
Rush was talking the other day about 13 things that strong, mentally strong people do. And one of them is they don't allow themselves to be offended. Why do, why do you think people are offended by that? Why do you think these people do get offended by a prayer being offered at a town hall meeting, a cross on public property, or, or a nativity scene on public display? Well, and, and personally thinking, I think a lot of it has to deal with the fact that it it's become such a me generation. It's become such a uh, it's all about me type of deal, and they're not taking it's the inclusiveness. I'm not part of that club, so they're trying to rub it in my face type of deal. So I, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, not being included, and they want to be able to include everybody into this as opposed to you know separating people out by. Is it automatically exclusionary though to have a cross or a menorah or a nativity scene or? I, well, I, don't, I don't know what Islam puts up this time of year, but is, is it automatically, is that, I mean, I, I don't look at as a menorah as saying, hey, if you're not of the Jewish faith, don't come over here. We don't want you here right now. In fact, it's, it's, it's totally the opposite. Right. Well, I think some people, though, have taken it completely to the opposite way. I mean, it doesn't offend me. Uh, I'm Christian by faith, but I don't, I don't practice it as much as, say, you know, yourself or Pat or somebody else. Uh, but it doesn't bother me, but I think a lot of people have come to the to the conclusion that they're trying to, you know, they're trying to show off. They're trying to, to, to put it front and center. They're trying to persuade people. They're trying to say, if you're not of this faith, fill in the blank, then, then um, you know, you shouldn't be here or you shouldn't try to force it upon people. That's, that's the way I kind of look at it. Now. Well, people, I think, I think people see it too as a, th- if you're particularly if you're not religious, they somehow see it as a threat to to their their way of living. That their belief, yeah. they're, that they're being forced, quote unquote, to to deal with this. And in some ways, it may be people who just can't conceive the idea that different people can believe different things, and that's okay. How did we get to that point, though? I mean, there was a time in this country. If you go back to 1791, the first amendments, the the first ten amendments, the Bill of Rights gets. Uh, ratified, put into place in the Constitution. It, the attitude amongst the country is one almost of almost of rejoicing in the sense of, look, we've protected our religious freedoms. Right. Even though I'm here in Massachusetts and I'm, I, I'm kicking out non-Puritans because they're not Puritan enough, uh, or I'm throwing out Protestants in Maryland, or I'm... Or the taxpayers are paying for the religious, the ministers of Church X, but not of right. Church Y. And, right. In, in Georgia, in Georgia or, or so Virginia forth, or wherever. So I mean, and yet that didn't seem to bother people then. Why Why the difference today? Well, I think you get to the point where as, as people evolved going through the 50s and 60s, you kind of got this. And I don't, I think it's only started, you know, coming up around the 60s. I think a lot of it has to do with uh, going back to that um, expression of feeling, expression of freedom. Mm-hmm. But it's all about, it's all about me. It's it's turning in as I say, it's turning into the me generation. More and more people are more worried about them themselves as opposed to community. They're worried about um, how their how their life is going, how what what evolves them as opposed to what evolves the community. Instead well, of just kind of ignoring it or or accepting it or just kind of look I don't even say looking the other way, but kind right. of being inclusive on it. You know, oh yeah, that's nice. I, I think a lot of people are are taking offense. I think a lot of people are very hypersensitive these days. And I think, well, and I, I think you also maybe have, you know, the, we always talk about the pendulum swinging one way or another. To be fair, 
you know, there was a time, and if you go back to say the 40s or the 50s or the 60s, you know, I said a few minutes ago, I wouldn't care at all if a menorah was placed on public property. Wouldn't bother me at all. Well, there was a time where, in a lot of parts of this country, if you weren't Christian, if you were Jewish, or if you were of no faith, you really were facing some sort of persecution, or or at least a menorah being put up on public ground. That wouldn't have happened. And so, I think there are some people who have kind of swung too far the other way and right. saying. We don't want to go back to that, so therefore we can't have anything. Right. They, I've, I've talked about my experiences growing up in Utah as not a member of the of the locally dominant faith, and and I've said this before. Nothing. And let me make this clear. I love Utah. It's, it's my second home. I I go back as often as I can. My brother went back the other day for a football game. Uh, support my high school alma mater. My best friend lives in Utah, but. Growing up, there's not a member of the dominant faith. There was never anything overt in the sense of you will just believe this and you will pray this way. Blah, blah, blah. But there was a lot of pressure in a in a non overt way. There was just hey, an, there was just an assumption that right. well, of course, everybody's. What do you mean you're not going across the street for religious classes in the fourth hour? Well, everybody's doing it. How come you're not going? Kind of thing, right? And uh, prayer before any kind of ceremony was it was a it was de rigor i mean it automatically happened uh, i don't know that it still does today but i can tell you in 1979 and 1980 in 1981 it did and it was always a, a an lds prayer always it was never there was never even in consideration of anything else now is that overt or did they just randomly choose a, a student from the population right. you know that that offers the prayer but because you know in a student body of 400 people there's maybe 10 of us that aren't yeah, LDS, which which happens a lot, right? I mean, in some of the cases we're going to be talking about today, I think it's to a degree that's a factor. I, I don't know. I, I do know that it was one of the things that caused me to look at religious freedom and prayer in schools, in particular, much differently than I had prior to that. Right, because I I've come to the conclusion that people who say that they are for mandatory prayer in schools, what they're really for is making me or my kid pray the way they want them to exactly. pray. Exactly, and that's that's not. This goes back to what I've been saying all the last month or so about the difference between values and principles. My values are clearly religious in nature, um, but what are my principles? And if my principle is the First Amendment says religious freedom, I can't really favor anything that that either A, establishes my faith as, as the dominant faith, or at the same time causes somebody else's to be seen that way. And so I have to temper what I think in, in, that, in that vein. And, and it may also, and I do think you're right that people assume that, although I sometimes wonder, are they unconsciously assuming that? They're not really overtly thinking, oh, well, I want mandatory school prayer because I'm going to force everybody to pray my way. They just, in their mind, well, prayer is what right. they do every Sunday. So they just sort of assume, well, of course, that's what I mean, and no one has a problem with that because that's what everybody I wonder if that does around me Sunday morning. Yeah, I wonder if that's part of it is just an assumption that everybody does it the same way. Well, yeah, and, and, and that goes to that San Diego case that may come up, you know, later is is you have a you know you have a cross that is on a on a public ground, but as far as I remember, a uh, cross is a symbol that doesn't tie itself to a particular religion. It is kind of generic well, in, in well, it doesn't, I, it doesn't. Yeah, I don't know if it do. I'd go that far or not. I, well, I, I think this type, now if you were talking about an iron cross or a Roman cross or something, maybe you can't, but I, I, this type of cross is clearly a Christian symbol. Well, it's a Christian symbol, right. but, but it's not to, to the point that it's strictly a Baptist or Catholic right. or Lutheran. But it's clearly right. not 
it's clearly not atheist, Jewish, Islamic, or um, Buddhist, Buddhist, or, or exactly. something along those lines. Now, does that mean? And, and what we're talking about here, that we might as well transit into this: the Mount Soledad Cross. In case you missed this this week, the judge down in San Diego, uh, the San Diego Court of Appeals, which is a a sub court, I guess, is that the best way to describe that of the Ninth Circuit Court? Yeah, it's pretty accurate. It's, it, it, the Ninth Circuit is the is the largest district court in the in the country, uh, covering basically all the Western states, all the way out to the Marianas. And including Alaska and Hawaii. So the, uh, the judge of the San Diego Court of Appeals uh, ruled this week that the cross has to come down because it is, in his view, and, and he seemed, in, 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 his, in his writings, he seems somewhat disappointed. And, and what he said was, it, I, I don't have any choice. It, it has to because of this, 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 and this president. Right. Um, if it were up to his personal opinion, I don't know that, that would be the case. In fact, based on his previous rulings in the same case, uh, back in 2006, he ruled it could stay. So I suspect that he per- would prefer that the cross stay there, but feels bound by legal precedent that the cross has which, to come down. Which you have to really respect that you know he's doing his job. I do. Um, there's, uh, there's a lot of people that don't. There's an Impeach the Judge Facebook page out there, believe right. it or not. Uh, so the long history of the cross, since 1913, this cross has been down there on Mount Soledad in, in San Diego or near San Diego as a war memorial. Um, it was originally city of San Diego property and they got in trouble over that. You know, the city is establishing a religion. Is this a violation of the first amendment? Uh, the land was somewhat, and it's, it's kind of a convoluted tale, but the land was then transferred to the federal government while the case was being adjudicated, right? Which is, problematic in itself the senate actually transferred this on a voice vote there was on a, on a there's actually no recorded vote they actually just took a voice vote said yeah transfer it so we don't we don't even know we don't know if it passed 100 to nothing or 51 to not we don't know one well, then as i recall before they moved it to the federal government or either before or after they tried to sell it. they tried to just sell it right. to private property and that would have solved in theory everything it would have solved private property that got blocked too so they transferred it over and it's it's very confusing as to Technically, I suppose the title of the land right now is set with the federal government, which is why this is in the federal courts, right? Um, and sitting down there, the the ideas are well. There's three possible solutions here, so that's the first problem: is that you've got a cross on essentially government land set up as a war memorial, and in its past, it has been nicknamed the Easter Cross, which would make it clearly Christian in nature. Right. So, is it in fact an establishment of religion or not? That's the first argument. Is having a cross and, on federal land the establishment of religion? And I'm not entirely sure it is. I mean, I, reading some of the reaction to the decision, people have pointed out, and, you know, I've been there. I know, I know you've been there. You know, Arlington. I mean, obviously, it's a federal cemetery, and there's crosses on every crosses. I, or, I, I or just wrote that. David, or, I just you know, wrote that. Yeah, I mean, they're on every <laughs> single grave. Do we have to remove all of those, or are those not considered Christian? Well, and also, too, is in some of those unmarked, graves aren't they the headstones just across too isn't it right and i don't remember and if it's a and if some of those are you know unmarked graves where you don't know who's buried there i mean if you want to stretch out the argument that could have been a jewish soldier Correct. buried with a cross over them mm. you know? yeah which you know obviously in in the jewish faith for those of you who aren't familiar with that that would be a pro- that would be a huge problem yeah. i mean it really would be so um it, it, it it's intriguing to me as to whether or not it's an establishment of a religion. Is well, it a favoritism over religion? Does it come down to the simple fact that it's a cross and nobody's ever said, hey, let's put a star of David or a 
Buddhist symbol or something well, else here? I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know how deep we want to get into to case law, but there, you know, well, we got an hour, man. Well, but, you know, <laughs> with the establishment clause, as as I'm, I'm I know Dave knows, I'm I'm pretty sure Jeff, you know, the, we've got the Lemon case, which basically says for it to satisfy the establishment clause has to have a secular purpose. It can't advance or inhibit religion and it can't entangle the government with religion. And the only thing I really see this cross, but the only argument potentially I see would be the first point. Is there a secular purpose to the cross beyond just Christian? I don't, I don't see how having the cross. Well, I could see, I could see entanglement on this too, because it it's federal land. Well, that's true. I mean, they own that's it. true. And, and not only do they own it, but they used a rather, I hate to use this phraseology, but they used a rather backdoor way to grab that land away from San Diego, too, even though San Diego was fine with them doing it. Right. They didn't just, you know, this wasn't just land that, hey, belonged to the government and somebody put a cross on it. This is land that they used eminent domain to seize on a Senate vote that wasn't recorded while the while the case was being adjudicated. Well, and that, well there would have had to have been a House vote, too, right? Uh, I presume so, but I do know that the Senate voted on a on a voice vote, and right. that was the the final vote to take. Well, I suppose so. the House could have done a voice vote too. They don't do them real often, right? But, they but from that aspect of it, that's um, yeah, I can see you're right. There is there is an entanglement. I think that there is some element of entanglement. The ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Unions, has proposed has proposed three ways to solve this situation. First one is tear down the cross, Just yank it down, dismantle it. Is the word they use. Second one is sell the cross to a third party and physically transfer it off the public land. And the other one is to the government, have the government hold an auction, sell the parcel of land with the cross to the highest bidder. Now, that's problematic because there's no guarantee that the highest bidder is actually going to be uh, Christian. And indeed, you could probably anticipate that it wouldn't be that right. there would be somebody out there, you know, right. what, what's his name? The lawyer up in Sacramento who's always Newman, Nido. or Nido. Nido. you know, going out and buying it just to have the pleasure of tearing it down. Right. And see, that's so that one's not acceptable to the people who want the cross there. Uh, the second one, the uh, there was an Episcopal church that did do this process, but then they sued to block the sale. So. That kind of got hung up. And then, of course, the cross being dismantled is dead. I go back to on this, however, the, the question of whether or not it's establishment of religion. And that's, that's really the, the, the crux of this whole matter in a lot of ways. When we say something has been established as religion, what do we mean? What, what, what are we actually saying is, is, is done at that point? Well, in my interpretation, I think the establishment of religion is is like what England did with the Church of England. They they basically, for lack of a better term, force people to be part of the church. And, right. and force is kind of a bad. They, word, they didn't so. actually force people to be part of the church. However, it was the only it was the only game in town. It was the only officially recognized church, and it got special privileges. It got well, special. In fact, to this day, I think the the British government still pays still is. right right pays all the Church of England ministers. So so the establishment clause to me means that. The government will not create a religion, i.e., like a communism, like in China, stuff like that, well, where where communism is the religion, you know, type of deal. Um, I, I think it's it's the the freedom to establish your own religion on your personal basis, and the government will not have a say in how that religion gets gets started, run, or will not have a well a play but, into it. No. So, looking at the cross, I mean, if you know, I mean, I was I was going one way initially, but I'm I'm thinking you're right. If we've got the government owning that land, we've got the government maintaining that cross, tax dollars are being spent to keep that cross in operate, you know, safe and all of that. Tax dollars are being spent for that cross. Is that? But but then it comes out, does does that cross 
well a- actually then become a, a religious symbol as opposed to just a a symbol a war memorial right let's go to yeah. 1947 new jersey okay in the city or in the city of new jersey <laughs> it is basically a city when you, i don't know if you've ever been there or not but it's uh it's basically one big city. Um, New York it, City's parking lot. Right. That's what I refer to it on a fairly regular basis. In 1947, the state of New Jersey um, started a process by which they reimbursed parents for transporting kids to school. Follow me here so far? Right. The idea was, of course, that the, this was saving some money. Anyway, the, the, uh, the idea here was that they were doing this. A, uh, a case was brought by one New Jersey taxpayer against using tax dollars to, to fund both the school district and provide reimbursements to parents of both public and private school children who were taking the public transportation system to school. And specifically, so the kids were getting on the public transportation they, and they get reimbursement from tax dollars for doing this. He specifically objected to the students who were attending private religious schools. He felt that that established a favoritism towards a religion. Okay. Which is one of the criteria here. When you go back to the church of England, it wasn't so much that the English said, Oh, you have to belong to the church of England. In fact, England and and Scotland have a long tradition of, uh, Wesleyan Methodism, uh, some other Anabaptism, Presbyterian, Presbyterianism, uh, some of the other things along the way here that aren't so much church of England, but at the time, particularly the 17, 1800s, the church, the the government favored the Church of England to the point of you know tax breaks and things like that, and paid as you said paid the ministers. They were simply essentially government employees. And I don't know if you knew this or not. If you were not a member of the Church of England, there were certain cemeteries you could not be buried in, no matter who you were. Even even if you'd been knighted by the Queen or King, as the case may be, right. if you weren't Church of England. You went to the crappy cemetery over on the east side of town. You didn't. You didn't, get, <laughs> you didn't the, get the nice one. You don't get the nice. You get buried four feet instead of six feet. Yeah, pretty much. This idea of favoritism. So here's the same argument now. The the state of New Jersey is reimbursing people for using public transportation, which in today's world you can almost see that happening because they're trying to encourage people to to use public transportation. Right. They're trying to get people to buy health insurance. How are they doing that? Oh, here's a here's a taxpayer funded subsidy. Right. Same kind of idea, but he objects to the idea that certain students that are taking the public transportation to private schools and specifically religious private schools establishes a religion in the state of New Jersey and in, essentially in the state of New Jersey at this point. Thoughts? Well, it's, I mean, it's 25 years later, but that's basically what happened in the lemon test. I mean, it was, in that case, buying books for mm-hmm. books and supplies for schools. And again, the objection was why should my, you know, my tax dollars can go to a public school fine, but why should my tax dollars as a non-religious person be used to buy textbooks or in the, or in the 47 case bus transportation for, isn't it the a same argument school? Is, just, isn't it the same argument today when it comes to vouchers? Pretty much. See, now I went to a parochial school. I went to a Lutheran school from K through five. And there was no bus service there. My parents had right. to had to take me right. there, and that was the, the the rule of the church was that. I would school, imagine it came about because of this. It probably did, and that was back in obviously the the early seventies. We've talked at great length in the past on Constitution Thursday about the idea of incorporation under the Fourteenth Amendment, which is where the 
the Bill of Rights specifically and other elements of the Constitution as well are under the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause and Due Process Clause automatically by court ruling decreed to be part of the state constitution, even if they're not. Right. So if your state doesn't have in there, you have the right to freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of trial by jury, uh, so forth and so on. The courts have said, nope, the state must abide by this portion of the federal constitution as well. This is a process known as incorporation. It is a, it's a problematic process, one that, I, I've said this before. It's the right idea. It's the wrong methodology. States should have been permitted to say to themselves, hey, we're being stupid here. We want a federal law that says we protect freedom of speech and freedom of trial and freedom of this, that, and the other, as opposed to the federal government coming in and forcing it on them, which was, and I've said this before, the intention of the 14th Amendment. If you go back and read, and I have them, I actually have the debate, the Senate floor debate from right. 1869 with the 14th Amendment. I have the debate, and it's clear that this is exactly what they intended to have happen. They wanted incorporation, and that was their intent, which is why the fight over the 14th Amendment was so bitter in so many ways. I mean, if you think about it, we had just literally fought a war over states' rats and whether or not the states right. could decide for themselves what was and what wasn't. Right. And now here you turn around, and the victorious union, led by the Republican Party of that day, uh, is passing an amendment that essentially says, and what they intend for it to mean is, we're going to enforce the federal constitution onto states. Now, in that era, of course, the ideology was somewhat different. I mean, you, you were, they, were, they were more concerned with the rights and privileges of former slaves, but it was clear to everyone there that what their intent was, it should have been clear what was going to happen with all this. In fact, California is one of the states that rejected the 14th Amendment. For that reason. For that reason. Did not, did not accept the 14th Amendment until, I believe, 1960, 1959. Well, before the still, state of California. There still a few There's states. Still that, some few. that haven't. Uh, some states say they didn't, but the federal government says that they did. By proxy. Well, well it's... Um, southern states. There, there were southern states that didn't technically have government. Hmm. And you know, still, still under reconstruction and so forth and so on. And the army um, walked in and said, essentially said, well, they were told. The army walked in and said, okay, you're the government. You okay with it? Cool. Yeah. And the states were told, if you want to choose your own government, your first action is to ratify the Fourteenth Amendment, or you don't get a government. But but the Fourteenth Amendment takes away local government. Uh, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. Right. We don't care. You ratify this, or you don't get a state government. And. Yeah, you can have that argument all day long. Again, I don't disagree with the process of it, the, the ideal of incorporation, that the state of California should protect the same rights as the Bill of Rights. I don't have a problem with that. What I have a problem with is the process by right. which that was done. And part of that process comes into, into question here in the 14th Amendment because, and, and with the First Amendment and the Establishment Clause. Because when you read the Establishment Clause, it's very clear. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Nor prohibiting. It does, well, I mean, or I know prohibiting we're not, free exercise. I know, we're, I know we're not getting that right. this week, but that kind of tails in. It, to, it does, but this is very important because Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion is a, I don't want to call it a negative liberty, a charter of negative liberties, but this is a, a severe restriction on government, on the federal government, and noteworthy for what it does not say, more than what it does say in some ways. It says Congress shall not, but it doesn't say Wyoming shall not. Right. State, state. Louisiana shall and can, not. And if you incorporate, can you 
pull the word Congress out. Bingo. How can you incorporate as a protected right something that was intended to not be? Well, or, or again, for that matter, you know, if you're talking establishment of religion and whether it's the book case or the, the bus case, if the taxpayer dollars said, well, we will pay for books and buses to Catholic and Presbyterian schools, but Lutheran, Jewish, and Baptist ones don't get it. That would be one thing, because yeah, there. But here, if it's saying any school, religious or otherwise, gets it, is that really? I mean, it's equal, it's everybody's equally protected. Everybody's getting the same thing. In New Jersey, in 1947, the court ruled Hugo Black, writing for the majority, ruled that the giving of subsidies to private schools was, in fact, the establishment of religion, and incorporated at that point the establishment clause, which. Again, I, I don't know how you incorporate something that was intended by its own writing and intention never to be incorporated. I mean, we mentioned Maryland earlier as founded as a Catholic state today. If you look at that map, hardly Catholic at all, at, at least not as a dominant religion. Don't you think Maryland at some point would have would have figured out themselves to say, you know, OK, well, we're no longer dominantly Catholic. Maybe we should change these rules. Well, you had brought up earlier about about the voucher system mm -hmm. too. So, so that plays into the fact that if you're going to put vouchers, do they put vouchers for public and private schools as long as the private school is not a parochial school or religious school, or religious school, well, or even if it is a religious school, if all religious school again, if all religious schools can get it. I mean, I understand what Black decided, but if all religious schools can get it on an equal basis, is that really establishing? I mean, to me, establishing a religion means I favor a specific religion or a specific denomination over others. Right. And I and I give preferential treatment to them. As opposed to anybody who's religious or non-religious or... So did Black get it wrong? I, I kind of think he did. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I really do. I mean, I, mean, I hate to say that because he's a big, you know... Right, right. I mean, he's, he's one of the big, he's one of the big, big bins. On the other but, hand, you know, all of the justices got stuff wrong from time to time. Yeah, Dred Scott. Yeah, but, but part of the issue is, is that they're, they're establishing their religion as a whole. So I think what he tried to take into this is that just because it is, it's not specific to a religion, you're favoring a religion over a public. Or any religion. Or any you're religion. You're favoring well, religion. But are you? As a gem. But, but are you? But are you? I mean, I'm. Not, it's not like I'm giving books or whatever, you know, in widgets to religious schools and not giving it to non-religious schools. But All is the, the schools are getting it. But it, but does the but does the religious school have to follow the same? I hate to say the word curriculum. In this case, are they required to follow the same as I curriculum? As, I think in most of the cases, I mean, in the book case, I know it was they were supplied. The books were supplied for non-religious. For, for the secular part of school, for the math, the science, the history, the reading, the so on. So, so does that then come back to do the same exact thing as the busing? Are you providing public money to private schools to to favor there? I mean, that that's you're, you're mixing you're you're mixing the education and religion aspect of this right, together. Yeah, and it is but, a, and it is a tough call as to which way, because you're right. I mean, it, I do see the argument. It's mixing and. If you give them money for books, then they can take the money they otherwise would have spent on books for religious instruction. I mean, when, when I went to school, when I went to my Lutheran school, there was, you know, you had the math, you had the science, you had 
the history. Right. You, you had, you know, the spelling. But there was always a class time that was done towards the Lutheran faith. Right. Always, every Wednesday we went into the chapel. We heard the pastor speak for an hour. We came back and we had a class discussion on it. I, I didn't move classrooms like they do today. I was in one classroom all day long. God help my teacher. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, but for that, if you're supplying public money for books and education and they are incorporating a religious class into that classroom, right. then does it become, you know, it's the same thing as busing people. Yeah, I, I'm just not sure it is. I mean, I see the argument because you can use the money that you would have otherwise used to buy the books to now buy religion, to do religious instruction. Yeah. But some of my math problems was, you know, Joseph had two loaves of bread okay, and he gave well, you know, stuff like that. I mean, they, they always, see, I didn't go to a religious. Yeah. So. They always mix some sort of, yeah, biblical reference into that. So, you know, yeah, that uh, that's where it gets interesting, doesn't it? And and again, in Utah, when I when I was in Utah, and I, I assume it's the same way now. I haven't been there in thirty years to live. I mean, I've been back. Right. But I was there every high school, and I believe every middle school. Don't quote me on that, but I, but I know every high school had a building directly across one of the side streets, so off school property private property that was an LDS study center. And every every student was given the opportunity to go over there for an hour a day as part of their instruction and take right. a class there. It, but it was off-school property. Now, could you make the case that as a not-for-profit church, they were getting a tax break that might have been preferential? You could. I mean, I'm... If I, I had I, wanted I, to set up a synagogue the same way or a school the same way... Would I have gotten the same deal? Could I have said to students, hey, if you want to come over here for an hour, you can. Well, probably not in Utah. Probably <laughs> not. So and, how and is I, that not established? And, that is just, and, I, and I definitely see the point Jeff's making. I'm just sort of, you know, you always want to argue one side or the other right. side. I, I want to argue the non-side. I mean, frankly, personally, I, I tend to be a little uncomfortable, although I don't personally, on the broad sense, have a problem with school, religious schools getting help. I, I am uncomfortable with the tax dollars going there. I'm just not sure from a legal standpoint, you can necessarily argue if everybody's getting the same thing that it's establishing one over the other. Well, that brings me to my thought here on 1947. I mean, in 1947, who's really thinking, oh my God, they're giving bus subsidies, refunds, whatever you want to call them, to, to kids going to every school, including religious schools. Who's thinking that that's, What's the thought process that goes into that that says, I have a case here for establishment of religion? Who's thinking that way? Well, at least one person because they filed the lawsuit. But, but why? What's the thought process that you think that goes into this? What's happening in 1947? World War II. Well, World War II is over. Over. Communism? Communism is coming on. Maybe. In, in, in terms of governmental changes, in the 19, late 1940s, we're starting to see something happen that is unprecedented, I suppose, in the United States history with regards to governmental income and revenues. Taxes are starting to go up. The, the government has discovered that, oh, if we just keep money, we told everybody it was for the war, but... Right. Well, because taxes, of course, went way up during the war. Right. And everybody was okay with that. Because, because we were the fighting war. war. We had to defeat, you know, evil. But now the war's over. And the government's thinking, gee... Do we really need to lower like those taxes? Money. Yeah, I like this money. And people are starting to pay attention to what's happening with taxes at this point. And you start looking at how your tax money is spent. And we do this all, we all three do this on a fairly regular basis. Look at this tax money being wasted on 
fill in the blank. I mean, you don't, you know, paying billionaires widows for for whatever and, right. and so forth and so on. And and I'm wondering if the thought process, as we've seen more and more of this kind of stuff, isn't more about the idea that hey, if you're going to keep this money, spend, we're going to be account. You're going to be accountable. Spend for it, it on something reasonable, right? As opposed to anything. It's just a possibility as opposed to anything where he, this guy was just, you know, I hate religions and I'm going to put a stop to this. Right. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what's, what was going through his head, but but I kind of wonder about that. And I and I kind of look at Soledad the same way. What if the whole motivation here isn't that we hate Christianity? It isn't that we, um, whatever. What if that issue is entanglement? What if that issue is how much is the government spending on this? And a considerable sum, although... Not in every case is, I mean, the, the New York case, I don't think has anything to do with, I don't think they spend any money there. Right. But, but I see your point. But during the war, I mean, taxation during the war was heavy. If I, if I, oh yeah, 90% in some cases. 80s and 90%. So as you said, you're, you're, you're having people, the birth of a tea party. How about that? (laughs) Something like to, to that effect where people are looking at that stuff now. They're, they've, they've gotten out of the war. They're back in the workplace and they're realizing a lot of my money's going out and I'm not getting a whole lot for it. So you, you started having people looking at, as you said, looking at every nickel and dime that that's going out to, to question right. government. Yeah, and but, is that a bad thing? No, no. I mean, but that's, that's a good point because pre-war taxes were relatively low. It wasn't really until the thirties with the depression and then the war that taxes really started to matter to the average person. Right. And even in the thirties, I'm not sure they did because your average income in the thirties, right. Because you're coming back from the depression. So the average person paid practically nothing. And I think I read somewhere the, the first income tax, if you made $4,000 in income, your income tax was a penny or something. Right. It was ridiculously small unless you were really, really well off. Right. In which case you probably had some ways around that. Right. Sort of along those lines. It, it, It just intrigued me that the government, Something happened after World War II, and that is that the government, particularly coming out of the Roosevelt administration, the Franklin Roosevelt government, really exploded in the sense of what had hitherto before been the realm of the state, the realm of the individual, the realm of of liberty, was now suddenly the government. From the the WPA to the CCCs, you know, my grandfather, who is, um, well, he's, he's long dead now, but he, uh, very devout Christian, lay pastor, that sort of thing, but also, and I didn't realize it until later, very libertarian. I mean, very strongly in favor of liberty. He wanted self-determination. He didn't want, and to the to his dying day, he would tell you that he was kidnapped, shanghai was his words, into the Civilian Conservation Corps by the government. They didn't give him a choice. So you're, you're unemployed, you're going to here. Boom. And I think I wonder how much that caused people to, as as Jeff pointed out, as as what happened in uh, in in two thousand and nine with the reaction to the realization that government had expanded to the point of oh my god, this is this is almost a quantum leap in some ways, and we've got to do something about it. Well, and and you have people coming back from as you said coming back from the war going into into public you know, our private fund, you got a lot of public officials expanding these people coming back. I think it was really the birth of, of the expanded government, as you said. And, and I think it was needed on the government side of I'm playing you now, I'm playing the other side of the, right. the coin here. I, I think the government saying we, we need to, we need to kind of keep these people in check. Right. As opposed to necessarily, and I'm not saying that it isn't, but I don't know that it's necessarily, oh, I hate Christians. So I want that cross torn down. 
I mean, certainly there are some. I think there is some. There's some element of that, but I think yeah, a lot of it isn't necessarily certain lawyers in Sacramento. I'd say that that's probably well, the yeah. But on the other hand, I mean, we've got three relatively religious people here who obviously have no hostility to a particular faith, but are but if we found out are sometimes uncomfortable with right. If if I found out today that the federal government was spending half a million dollars a year maintaining Mount Soledad, how does that fit with my principle? I would that, be I would be upset. That would be that would clearly be establishment. Right. It, it's just like the people who who think that. Well, I uh, just lost my train of thought. Sorry. Well, well what, where's the level? I mean, what if it was ten thousand dollars a year, five thousand dollars a year, well, five hundred dollars a year? If you're going to argue for five million, you have to argue for five hundred. I, I, I think you can't. Right. And that's what I've been talking yeah. about with the difference between values and principles. Right. Principles apply whether it's a penny or a billion. Right. They don't they don't shift with the amount. And that's uh, that's part of my thought. So let's uh, let's go to Greece, New York, then. Uh, kind of tell us what happened here, Pat. Okay. Well, basically, Greece, New York, it's a suburb of Rochester. For many years, they had a tradition that before their town council meetings, they'd have a moment of silence, as so many councils do, including here in Modesto. Yeah. You know, so it was initially just a moment of silence. In the late '90s, they changed it to a prayer. Uh, the prayer was officiated over by a local clergy chosen from a list compiled by I think by the Chamber of Commerce. And if you might guess, virtually every single prayer was Christian because in a little uptate state town in New York, pretty much everybody's going to be. Uh, people sued saying, well, I believe it was an, one atheist, one Jewish sued saying that's the establishment of religion. They're, they're having over an official town meeting, these people come in and pray and they're all Christians. It made its way up to the Second Circuit in New York which basically said, yeah, that's the establishment of religion. That practice is, is not allowable. But they made it clear uh, that not every public prayer is uh, not allowable. Just quoting real quick from their, their ruling, they said, basically, if it's, you know, it's, a, it's a problem if it conveys to a reasonable person under the totality of the circumstances some sort of official affiliation with religion, in this case, obviously, uh, it was a Christian religion that they said uh, was being established. What's interesting is there's actually sort of a way we talked a little bit ago about lemon being, you know, establishment clause cases. There's actually another case called Marsh, which says that public prayer is okay before legislative sessions. I think it was in Nebraska because it's quote unquote, a tradition. And they point out reasonably, I think that you talked a bit ago about Madison and the bill of rights. The same Congress that established, that passed the First Amendment, literally the ne either the next day or the day after, passed the rule saying we're going to open all of Congress's sessions with prayer. And mm -hmm. so, in yeah, Washington in, himself, that in his first proclamation as president, and I, we'd be remiss if we didn't thank the deity. And so, you know, the the point made by those who find this ruling wrong and who supported the, that Marsh ruling said, well, how could Congress possibly have intended to outlaw public prayer before legislative sessions? If they themselves said there can be public prayer before legislative sessions, it's was argued before the Supreme Court uh, about a month and a half ago. So, so is it? What do you think? Put on your robe. What do you think? Is a public prayer prior to a legislative session, particularly of a town council or a city council, is that establishment? Well, also too, as I was going to say, how does it? How does that differ from the inauguration prayer or right. the prayer breakfast that the president attends every well, year? You know, or doesn't or doesn't yeah. well you know i think it's going to depend a little from my point of view a little bit on how the practice is carried out because 
people have talked about how these two cases are in conflict. I kind of look at it as Marsh, the, the case that said public prayer is okay, is more saying, okay, that's the secular purpose because, you know, there were the three things you had to have. It's tradition. It's always been done. So that's the secular purpose. It's fine. It's not establishing religion. But you get to those other prongs, entanglement and promotion. I think the way the second circuit was ruling here is they're saying if there had been a diversity of prayer, if there had been some Christian prayers, if you know, you'd had Jewish right. citizens come in, if you'd had you know, a Muslim come in, if you'd had some diversity, that'd be fine. The issue here is that over 10 years, every single prayer was a Christian prayer, and even when they tried to fix it, they didn't really fix it. Yeah, but if you open a prayer you know, to whom it may concern, it's not a prayer anymore. I mean, it's a well, letter. It's a letter. You well, know? And, and, that, and you know, yeah, if you want and, you know, want to go beyond listening to our wonderful podcast, you can actually go to the Supreme Court website and listen to the arguments in this case. And those are the, there are a lot of those kinds of questions that were raised by the justices. They were asking people, okay, they're asking those suing to stop this. Okay, well, you're saying this public prayer isn't okay, but you're saying public prayer in general is okay. So what kinds of right. public... You know, well, what, I, what, what words would I be able to use in the prayer to make it okay? And it was, there were some exchanges between Justice Alito and Justice Scalia and these guys that are just really very entertaining because, like you say, what's the same argument? What, is, it, is it $10 or a billion dollars? Is it what makes it a prayer and what makes it a public? Well, or, or what diversity would make it a, right. acceptable if, if you had, you know, okay, this week we'll have Minister Jones come in. You know, next week we've got, you know, five Jewish citizens that are willing to come in and pray. So they'll have a, So each week you have variety. Then you start getting me back to the, well, there's diversity. It's not the same thing. Yeah, but then do you open a prayer, dear God, Buddha, well, no, John the, Smith? Well, know? no. The Christian <laughs> prayer would, would be Christian. Church of the Fonz, you the, know what? Dave's church. I mean, the, it, the, I worship at the church of the National Football League. Yeah. The, the church of Kim Jong Day. Right. Church, that's Church of Curse of Bay or the Church of Baseball. Yeah. Either one of those would be, yeah, that's, that would actually be a pretty good one. That's a uh, nice Bull Durham, Durham reference there. It's that's uh, pretty good. So at the end of the day, where are we at? I mean, let's, let's take our, let's take stock of what we've talked about here. Is Mount Soledad establishment or not? I'm inclined to say it is if if public money is being spent. And as you say, you know, if, if it's a dollar, if it's a million dollars, if if you're spending government money to promote what in that case is clearly supposed to be a Christian symbol, it, I think it's establishment. I think it's tradition. Actually, I don't think so. I think it goes back to what you had talked about being a, um, a traditional thing. It It was already there. It was there before the fight, um, and I think part of that was, again, they made the attempt to, to, to sell it to private, which got blocked. I, I still don't understand right, why that they would. I don't get. I mean, that would seem the ideal solution. You just transfer it to private owners, and you're done. But, but because you have it at Arlington National Park, because you have it at a lot of these different types of, uh, of federal or state or military cemeteries throughout yeah, the you know a fair point go over to go over to san bruno and, and you go across 280 and you see crosses for days on on that that uh, federal land right there so uh, based off of that tradition based off of establishment already i don't think it is i don't all think right. it is an establishment of all right there's case one prayer at town councils 
establishment or not. Jeff, you open this. I, I say no as well. Again, it goes back to tradition. You have uh, a multitude of different public and, and federal events that are that, that open with a prayer. Uh, Congress opens with a prayer. I think the Supreme Court does. Yes. So, um, you know, in this case, I think you're just following tradition as well. That. Well, I think as long as you have some level of diversity in the prayer, it's it's not establishment. I mean, because it is a tradition, but I do think you need s- something other than one particular religion every single meeting. Right, but Greece didn't do that. And Greece didn't do that. And had they done it, the impression you really get from the ruling by the Second Circuit is if they just had a little more diversity, they wouldn't have had a problem with it. So you say that that is establishment or is not? In Greece, it's establishment. In general, it's not. All right. Let's talk about uh, vouchers then for private schools. So this is essentially the use of tax money to subsidize private education, which then the parent can choose the private school or the public school, whatever, charter schools, whatever they want to do. Establishment or not? I I don't think it is either. I think you're giving free will to uh, the parents at that time to choose which school they want to. Uh, as as we had stated earlier, I, I think public money already goes into some of these private schools for the establishment of you know math and, and the basic uh, concepts or the basic uh, text lessons that are there. I, I think it it's a it's a free choice for the parent. The state is not handing them the money to say you have to go to this school. They're basically saying you need to spend this money on a school based off of that. I I would agree as law again. You know, it's the lawyer in me. I have to, to, to I have to always qualify. As as long as there is some reasonable effort to make sure that the public money is going to basically non-religious stuff. You know, if you're giving public vouchers and it's more or less for the education part of it, I don't see it as establishment. You have arguments with yourself at home too. Yes, <laughs> you I bring do. yourself up to a same topic and then you go, "Well, I must take the other side of this as well." No, you're not really a good lawyer unless you don't. <laughs> there you go. Well, that's the First Amendment. Establishment clause. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. If you, you'll notice that the most of these cases are tied two to two. Um, we're going to depend on you. Podcast at ConstitutionThursday.com. Tell us what you think on each of the three cases. Do you think that the Soledad Cross is establishment? Do you think that prayer before town councils, city councils is establishment? What about vouchers and or bus fares or whatever you want to call it? Just uh, send us an email at podcast at th- constitutionthursday.com. And don't forget, you can always check us out at constitutionthursday.com. Plenty of uh, not much action this month. I, well, it seems like we've a holidays got everybody kind of. At, at the risk of violating the establishment clause, I hope all the listeners do have a Merry Christmas. <laughs> yeah. What am I supposed to say now? Hanukkah's over. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everyone. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Tycho Brahe birthday. Happy Kwanzaa. Happy Saturnalia. Happy Chinese New Year. Festivus for the rest of us. Thanks, guys, for being here today. Constitution Thursday, Power Talk, 1360, 1280. Modesto Stockton is is our host, but you can uh, check us out online, Let us know what you think. Soledad, Prayer and Councils, and Vouchers. Podcast at ConstitutionThursday.com. Thanks, everybody.